The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's Wednesday, August the 23rd, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. This week, we thought we would stay away a bit from questions of party or parliamentary politics and try to drill a bit deeper down into what has become the defining crisis of this political era. This week, the media has been full of stories about skyrocketing rents, rising house prices and unprecedented numbers of homeless families, along with horror stories about the standard of accommodation on offer to students as they return for the new academic year. I was joined by by two of the most well-informed analysts of the relationship between the state and property over the years and the challenges which we face now. Michelle Norris is head of the School of Social Policy, Social Work and Social Justice at UCD and chair of the Housing Finance Agency. But I talked first to Lorcan Sir, who's a lecturer in Housing Studies and Urban Economics at the School of Real Estate and Construction Economics at the Dublin Institute of Technology. So, Lorcan, in today's Irish Times, there's pages, as there seem to be nearly every every day at the moment, about the property crisis, the horror of trying to find a place to rent in Dublin, the substandard quality of accommodation, the extraordinary rise in uh, in rents over the last few years. And uh, our own Cliff Taylor has a, has a short analysis piece essentially saying, this is a simple problem, it's a problem of supply. Is he right? Well, I mean, it is in, in, in some respects. There's... There's when supply doesn't meet demand, you know, the propensity then is for the owners of the properties is to jack up the rent and maximise their return, and that's a kind of that's the system that we operate in. You know, it's capitalism; it's the free market. Uh, they're not obliged to do this, but obviously they they are doing that. And the student market in particular is, is a very vulnerable market uh, because you tend to have you know inexperienced people, slightly vulnerable, coming up to the, the city uh, for the first time, probably away from home. They're young, late teens. Uh, and they don't know how to deal with this uh, situation. So, in, in, there are some, in some respects, there's a, there's a degree of exploitation going on uh, in that market. And that was you know, that was evidenced yesterday or and the day before by the guys from the Union Students of Ireland from UCD who did their video about going out to look at accommodation, student accommodation, mould and no mattresses mm-hmm. on beds and store your delf in the in the cupboard in the downstairs bathroom because the kitchen is too small. 
that's pure exploitation. I mean, there, there, there is no need for that. But in, in terms of the, the, the rents and prices, I mean, owners of properties, a lot of owners of properties are going to try and maximise the return. And they see students as an opportunity to really do that, to double down on that, because they'll squeeze as many in as possible and they, and they think that students are going to accept that. And he also makes the point that uh, that we don't necessarily have full visibility of what's going on in the market because the kind of the horrendous nature of the sort of rental increases means that anybody who's in rented accommodation right now will hang on in there for dear life. They're a bit like people who have tracker mortgages. So it, it puts a, a damper on people's willingness or ability to move. Yeah, one of the reasons that there, I looked yesterday when this came out and, uh, and there's about 1,200 uh, units to rent in Dublin. It's about 3,500 across the country, about 1,200 in Dublin, something like that. Uh, and the reason, and that should be, you know, eight or 9,000 across the country and half those in Dublin. The reason it's so low is, is exactly that. There's no churn in the market. Nobody is moving because people are hanging on with their fingernails uh, to what they have, knowing that if they went somewhere else, the chances are that their conditions would, would more than likely be worse. So there, there's no movement in the market, really. Uh, hence, you know, uh, there's, there's very little properties coming, coming on, you know. Michelle, you've written about the history of the Irish state's relationship with property and provision of housing and the balance between provision of social housing and the, the private market since, since, since the 1920s uh, and, and before that. How should we look at this moment now? Should we look at it as some sort of extraordinary, unprecedented phenomenon or does it, does it have a place in a, in a kind of a longer narrative that we can try to understand? I think it has a place in a, in a longer narrative and uh, the, the problems we, had, we have now um, are quite predictable um, because they reflect changes to government policy, particularly made over the last decade. Um, so in the past, we built large amounts of, of social housing, mainly local authority housing. And in fact, until the 1950s, the majority of housing was social housing. And that meant that it, um, as well as providing good homes for people, it performed a useful function in the market, which often isn't understood. And that is it took low income people out of the housing market um, and it it provided additional supply that the private market wasn't providing. So it kind of counterbalanced the market and kept prices low. Now, what's happened um, in Ireland, particularly since the bust, is we've seen very, very sharp cuts in uh, capital funding for new social house building. Um, so it's 100% government funded, so output has gone down very radically. Um so that additional supply isn't coming into the market to counterbalance the market. But the, the other bit of the story um, is that instead of providing social housing for people and removing them out of the market, we're now subsidising um, low-income households to rent privately through rent supplement and there's a whole range of other schemes. Um, and what that does is it means that there's more competition in the market because people who previously would have been in social housing previous generations are now at the private rental market. And also those subsidies like rent supplement um, effectively form a floor under rents. So no landlord in his right mind or her right mind is going to charge less than the social, than the rent supplement rate in their area. So, these so are rents won't fall called, below These it. are the HAP schemes, essentially. Yes, I mean, there's there's a whole series of schemes, but they, they all, with a whole series of acronyms that are very difficult to keep track sure. of, but they all boil down to the same thing, basically. They're schemes that subsidise low-income households to rent privately. And all of those schemes, unfortunately, play a role in inflating rents across the market because the state subsidises a very large proportion of, of rents, about about 30 percent nationally. But in some urban areas, particularly lower rent urban areas, it's much higher. Um, it's 50, 60 percent. 
Um, and all of that means whereas the state in the past was counterbalancing the market, now the state is kind of acting in a pro-cyclical way that's helping to inflate rents. And very un- unfortunately for the for for the very laudable reasons, the government has increased rent supplement rates recently because people are having huge trouble getting accommodation. Um, so that's a very good reason for increasing rent supplement. But we know from academic research that uh, a very large proportion, 40 to 70 percent of those increases are just captured in increased rents. Yeah, so, so, th- so, so that's a big, important part of the story that uh, Cliff Taylor's article doesn't, doesn't, doesn't necessarily touch on. No, no, and it is. It, it strikes me. I was actually up at the opening of the, the Dublin Tenement Museum on, on Henrietta Street yesterday. I met a gentleman there who grew up uh, a family of 13 living in one room in a tenement in Henrietta Street. And they, at the age of 10, this is in the 1940s, they moved out to a new house in Dunny Kearney, one of the new council suburbs. And that, that's a sort of a classic personal example of that story you're talking about. And those suburbs of Dunny Kearney and Crumlin and all those, all those other housing estates built in the, in the, the 30s, the 40s, 40s, the 50s are now, you know, mature and actually quite expensive and mostly privately owned themselves. If if we're not doing that now or whatever the appropriate modern version of, of, of that narrative would be, are we not just stuck forever in this awful situation where the state is providing vast amounts of money in subsidy to private landlords and over pumping a private market with all the with, with all the other problems that we see as a consequence of that? In well, other words, are we not in this in a complete sort of, you know, vicious circle here now? Well, certainly in my view, we are. Um, and I, I looked up the figures on this um, uh, yesterday. And in 2007, 70% of government funding for housing um, was capital funding, mainly for building social housing by councils and also by non-profit housing associations. Um, we're n- the total budget for government housing has been cut radically, but the main cuts have been to the capital budget. So we're now spending 45% of the state budget on capital um, uh, spending on council housing. Um, and the remainder is going into these schemes to support people renting privately. And... Uh, there's a couple of problems with them. One of them is, as I've said, it just acts to inflate rents. So the people who are really suffering as a result are people on uh, lower wages who don't get social housing or they're low priority or people like students, as, as Larkin has um, uh, has uh, as Larkin has mentioned. The other problem we face with using these uh, supports like rent supplement is that if there isn't supply in the market, um, people on rent supplement or RAS, HAP, there's a whole series of, of, of them, um, all face enormous difficulties in accessing accommodation. Um, and that's the key driver of the homelessness crisis we have. Nearly every person in homeless accommodation in Dublin has come out of private rented accommodation. Um, there's a big debate about concerns around um, houses being repossessed, understandably. Um, but in fact, nearly everybody in homeless accommodation has come out of the private rented sector. And they are getting subsidy from government, but they just can't compete in the market. So in my view, the the approach, the general approach we have to supporting people um, who can't afford to buy or uh, rent housing is a problem. The focus of our approach is a problem. Lorcan, I'm not an economist, very very far from it. But, you know, looking at this, if prices, both property prices, sale prices and rents are rising as much, uh, surely classical economic theory should say that with that demand and with that increased, you know, with those increased prices, more supply should come onto the market, 
Why is that yeah. not happening? Yeah, well, the first thing is I'm, I'm not really an economist, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you exactly why. First, just to go back to, to um, uh, Michelle's point uh, about the HAP levels, this is shows you how, how the state is its own worst enemy here. It, so there are certain levels for, you know, if, you have a, if you're a family of two kids, the state, Dublin City Council, will give you X amount per month to rent. In 88% of cases, they're breaching that by supplementing the rent. So they're actually breaching their own limits. And that in itself... Because rents are set by the market in Ireland, that's driving up rents for everybody, not just council tenants or you know tenants that the council are, are housing, uh, but also for, for private individuals as well. In the state's rebuilding, in the government's rebuilding Ireland plan, out of the 47,000 social houses that are planned to be delivered, and the language is very important there, about half of those are going to come from pre-existing stock in the private rental sector. So all we're doing... When you say come from pre-existing stock, will they continue to be private rented accommodation? Yeah, it's just basically putting half those people into HAP schemes uh, again. And where's where's everybody else going to go? Now, the theory would be that everybody is going to go, you know, buy a house and that because of such pent-up demand, that supply is going to, to follow and all those people who are in the private rental sector saving up a deposit for a house will suddenly have magic brand new houses out of the air. The problem is... Uh, that the house builders are not playing ball with this. And it doesn't work. It's proven not to work in Australia and in the UK. Housing is not bananas. You know, when, when the price of bananas goes up, people buy oranges or whatever it is. Uh, or the huge demand for bananas goes up, banana suppliers start supplying them. Housing doesn't work like that. It's actually incentivized in our tax system not to build at the moment. There is Explain more. Explain that. Yeah. Okay. If you buy uh, buy land or property and hold on to it for seven years, you're exempt from capital gains tax. So why would you... If I was a landowner, uh, why would I build anything and sell it when I end up paying up to 33% capital gains tax? I hold on to it for seven years. And then in the in the interim seven years, I lobby for three things. I lobby for increased density or reduced standards. In other words, I get planning permission for housing on my land. That's not good enough, so I lobby to get um, reduced standards so I can squeeze more smaller units on. That's happened. I lobby for favourable tax treatment. That's happened with the capital gains uh, tax exemption. And I, I lobby for incentives like the help to buy scheme, for example. And all that does is increase the value of my land without me ever having picked up a shovel and built one house. And that's happening in Cherrywood. It's happening left, right and centre where the value of land is increasing. But because of the capital gains tax exemption, there's no point in crystallising your risk by hiring builders to build houses for you. And what you see is the paper profits of large house building companies increasing by up to 50 or 60% with no houses being built. And these are the same companies. One of them is tax exempt because it's what's called an ICAV. So Heinz out in, in Cherrywood. And it's perfectly legitimate. I'm not suggesting they're doing anything wrong. But they're in receipt of taxpayers' funding to help them build infrastructure uh, to their site, even though they don't have to pay tax in Ireland. The uh, the other crowd is a company called Cairn House Builders, who, who made multi-million euro profits last year, are also in receipt of 75 million of the 226 million LIHA funding, the infrastructure funding. So that's, that's a there. big chunk going and to they, one company. They're, they're building, yeah. Uh, yeah, and they're building, but they're building very few houses in return for this. And the, the, the important point here is not that they're building very few houses, is that we were supposed to get affordable houses in return for this taxpayer's money, and to date, we're not going to get any affordable houses. Clay Farm, which is a site in Dunleary, that Downs area, got LIHA funding, essentially taxpayers' money, to help it build infrastructure for the site. And the three-bed houses there are going to sell for €470,000. That is not affordable. So supply, there's no incentive for house builders to start building at the moment. So supply there's an incentive is, not to build. Actually. There is an incentive not to build. So supply, it's like a pressure cooker at the moment. And everybody's in the rental sector. Rents are rocketing. And, and owners of land are, you know, they would say it's a legitimate business strategy. And maybe it is sitting back and letting the value of their land and increase without building very little and in time they'll probably sell that land. 
Michelle, is, is this the law of unintended consequences that every time the states meddle, it seems to make, make matters worse? Or is there something kind of deeper going on? Because certainly in Dublin, as we know, there was, you know, uh, a, a uncomfortably close relationship between the political establishment and the house development industry, if it can be described as such, over, over many years indeed. You know, I mean, in other words, is what's going on here incompetence, which is what it sounds like partly to me, or is there something deeper going on in terms of the receptiveness of the political establishment to lobbying or close relationships with the, with developers? Well, I think it's important to say the first thing that's going on is our, basically our entire development industry went bust and um, we're having to re-establish our entire development industry. So obviously there is an element of I wouldn't start from here. Sure. Um, but there is also something deeper going on um, I feel not necessarily um, in relation to the state's traditional uh, close relationship with the building industry. Um, I think there is something going on around the state's close relationship with um, big foreign investment funds, big companies, etc. And I think there is a naive faith that they will deliver if the incentives are put there for them. And we know this from what's happened in Ireland, and Larkin's outlined that, but we also know it for looking at our neighbours in the UK. So they now have, we now have a, a market very close to theirs in the sense that there's a couple of big providers that dominate the market. It's effectively an oligopoly kind of situation. And they can make very large profits by not building a lot of land and certainly not serving the needs of the a person on an average income. They can do it by land hoarding. They can do it by certain types of development at the very high end. Um, so there's no need for the market to supply the kind of housing we need. And there seems to be a naive faith in government that they will um, supply if we put the incentives in place. Why do you think that faith is there? If the evidence... Points to the I think there's an conclusion. ideological predisposition towards what Michelle is outlining there within government circles. That and the market should provide. That the market will provide, not even should, but that, that the market will provide. I, I think that is naive. I think there's probably a, a, a not as much ability as there should be to push back against developers' claims and pleas for more incentives. Absolutely. Uh, there. Yeah. I think the developers come in with their slick marketing PowerPoint presentations and their figures, and I've seen some of the figures that they use. And you know, they're, this they're, is about how much it actually costs to, to yeah, produce yeah, yeah, and very heavy lobbying. And, 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 uh, and they're over egged a lot of the figures, and yeah. very heavy, and, a, and an inability to push back from the government. Um, the service. And you know, I use the example of our, our neighbours in the UK now, specifically England. I mean, the in England there is effectively a dysfunctional housing market. They've had a problem of gross undersupply of housing since the nineteen eighties. And uh, I always think we should look at our neighbours in England to see what we shouldn't do. That's a good example. We end up doing exactly what they do. Exactly. And one of the issues that's been pushed by the developers at the moment is um, give us a VAT exemption, just like there exists in the UK, and we will build. But the UK, uh, there's very, very low VAT on new housing. And as I mentioned, um, they are building, it's estimated one third fewer units than they need. And that's a very large... Uh, reason for their kind of boom-bust market, which we're now moving into. But yet, these solutions are put forward and um, there doesn't seem to be any um, informed criticism of them and an argument that, the, the you know, that we should do the opposite. The other thing I think that's happened is 
I think there's been a lack, a loss of faith among um, people in government and particularly civil servants in social housing. Um, so, for instance, if you look at the analysis that has been done by government departments, the housing agency of the costs of providing mainstream social housing, council housing, housing association housing versus the costs of leasing. All of these these uh, studies emphasise the downside risks of social housing, particularly around causing segregation, concentrating low-income families in, in certain areas. The downside risks of the, the other alternative, subsidising rents in terms of inflating rents for the whole market are, are never mentioned. And I think there's a huge concern that um, we'll go back to building the very large uh, monotenure, segregated social housing estates that, that, of the 70s. That, that are seen as having contributed yes. to social problems. But in, a, in actual fact, if you uh, go around and look at the large concentrations we have of social housing in this country, there are only seven or eight. You, could, you can count them on the on the fingers of two hands. And I'm sure many of, of uh, your Irish Times readers could name them off the top of their head. Mm. Um, so I'm not minimising the, the problems people have faced in communities like Ballymun, where, for instance, average income was so low, the bank shut down and the supermarket wouldn't operate. I'm not minimising those those problems and I'm not suggesting we should go back to them. But the many benefits of social housing in terms of providing a counterbalance to the market, permanent, guaranteed, secure housing for life. All of the very successful social housing communities we've built. I mean, your colleague Fintan O'Toole regularly cites the example of Crumlin. Um, uh, Parts of Cork, Waterford, Dublin, lots and lots of social housing estates in rural areas and small towns and villages that are extremely successful. Those benefits seem to have been forgotten. So I think I find it very interesting to hear you say that because there was clearly a, a change in policy. There was a change in policy not just in Ireland but in the UK and in other countries in the 1980s and 1990s and a, a political project perhaps to reduce the, the proportion of people who were living in state-supplied state housing or indeed to sell off some of that state-supplied yes. housing to the to the people who lived in it. And are you saying that that, that, uh, that mentality, that, that process of thought still exists in parts of the Irish establishment in terms of the civil service, in terms of the way that people think about social housing, a, a sort of a prejudice against social housing, perhaps based, you know, on, on bad experiences with building social housing and maintaining it in the past? I suppose um, I'm very loath to, to, to claim there's a kind of an ideological agenda because in, in my experience there, there, there rarely is. But there certainly, in my view, is a concern that we haven't managed social housing effectively in the past. Um, Social housing tenants have the right to buy their dwelling at 50% of market value, which is an absolutely enormous windfall subsidy. If you think probably the average social house in Dublin is worth 300,000, a windfall subsidy untaxed of 150,000 into someone's pocket is enormous. There's a feeling among civil servants that that policy cannot be touched. It's, it's, it's actually in place since the 1930s here. It, it, um, it's a very long-standing policy. It's constantly defended by politicians. Um, that means the value of social housing for the state is reduced and the cost is increased. Um, rents for social housing are income-related. There are quite high rent arrears in the sector. Um, the rents, in my view, are too low, unsustainably low. 
Um, and I feel there's a feeling that those policies cannot be rolled back on. For political reasons, they're untouchable. And a better solution is to look to the market to provide. And as I said, the downside risks of that aren't properly appreciated. But there are lots of countries in particularly in continental Europe that have large social housing sectors. They manage to build social housing and provide it in a counter cyclical way that counterbalances the market. Um, They manage to use social housing to increase supply and to avoid housing booms and busts. And they manage to to manage it properly. But you've written yourself uh, about how in in the past, when the Irish state didn't have much money, and and Finton, in fact, has written about this too, and had far less money than it has now, it still managed to, you know, to put a large amount of capital investment into the building of some of those suburbs that, that, that you're talking about then. Is, is there something fundamental in the way the state raises and spends this, that money that has changed and makes it more difficult for it to do that now? Well, yes, in, is, is the short answer. Um, in the past, until the 1980s, we built social housing by borrowing. So councils borrowed money generally, to build social housing. And sometimes they issued bonds. Dublin City Council would issue bonds and people in Dublin would go buy them. And that funded social housing. And for many years, the the rents tenants paid were related to the cost of their dwellings. They paid what we call a cost rent, a rent that covered the cost of providing it. So it meant the sector was effectively self-funding over over the long term. Obviously, you need to come up with a loan first, but you paid it down and mm. the, the sector was, event, uh, um, was essentially self-funding. Now, in the 1950s, we weren't part of the EU. We Accounting standards weren't, um, public accounting standards weren't uh, uh, standardised. We could kind of do what we like in terms of borrowing once we could pay the money back. Now we're part of the EU. We're part of much more strict uh, criteria in terms of public borrowing. And also, um, crucially in the past, and this is the bit of the picture that's often forgotten, as well as tenants' rents, Dublin City Council paid down its big, big council house building loans using rates, property taxes, remember them. Um, and once the rate system was abolished in the late 70s, the system we had of borrowing and repaying it became basically financially non-viable. And the government since then has funded social housing from grants, you know, Cap, what we call capital grants, in other words, given them the money to build or buy. The Which problem, makes them much, much more dependent on the, on, the, on, the, on the economic cycle, I suppose. Absolutely. It? Yeah. So it means that, to quote one of our previous finance ministers, it means that when, we, when I have it, I spend it, and when I don't, I don't. So it means that, for instance, during the Celtic Tiger boom, we actually built a huge amount of social housing. In 2007, we were building, spending £1.3 on social house building. Um, so that's quite a lot of building. But we were spending money at the time when the market was grossly overinflated. We we're probably getting poor value for money. But And it also meant then when the economy busted, social house building capital money was cut dramatically. So at a time when the private market could actually have done with the stimulus to build more social housing, we probably would have got better value. We were spending very little. So we we need to move away from that model. And if you look at European countries like Denmark, like the Netherlands, like Austria, with big social housing sectors, they all fund the sector by borrowing. Because just like you buying a house or me buying a house, it, it's much more efficient for us to borrow the money and pay it down over a long period, live in the house, use the asset, than it is for us to rent a house and save up the money to, to buy one, which is effectively what we're doing at the moment. 
through our social house funding policy. Yeah, there's two things that Michelle said that that, that, that strike me there that are, are, are the reason why we're not building social housing. One is the government don't want to put any more money on our, our national debt by, by borrowing money. And two, then the second thing, is, of course, is the politically toxic idea of property taxation and, and a decent uh, tax on properties that will go to fund community services and things like social housing. But, but you know, the, the irony is it's kind of a false economy in some ways because we're spending, you know, two, three, two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand 300,000 councils are going to buying houses like you, like you wouldn't believe in batches, as many houses as they can get their hands on to house people. And they're paying, you know, as much as they need to pay to get their hands on these houses. And in areas like Dublin uh, and the greater Dublin area, that's going to be a lot of money. Whereas you can build... And Simon Coveney, when he was minister, confirmed in the Dáil that you can build a social house for about €180,000. How come you can build a social house for €180,000? It doesn't cost a whole lot of money to build a house. It really is. Is it because of the site value? Well, you have the site value is one of the the biggest components in the sales price of a house. So in other words, when I spoke earlier on about people who have land and they add value to the land by getting planning permission and then they sell that to somebody else... I've, I pay 30 grand for each site that I have on my land. I add value. I sell it to Hugh for 100,000. Hugh sells it to Michelle for 120,000. That she, Michelle has to get 120,000 for each site before she even starts to build anything. So her houses are going to be 450,000 or 400,000, whatever they are. And that's why house price inflation is happening through land, uh, flipping land, essentially. But you can build a house for, you know, 170, 180,000, particularly if you've no land. Now, when I talk about the, the state building houses, people... The libertarians go balloons and think that I'm talking about council workers picking up, you know, shovels and spades, building houses. But that's not the way it works. I live in a council house in Cabra that was built by H&F Nolan and um, the other house builders who are still around, who I can't think of their name, Cramptons, who are still in existence. And built in June 1930, my house was finished. I know all that, the history of it, you know. And that, that was built by the Dublin Corporation issuing two contracts for 650 47 houses around Christ the King Church uh, to private developers uh, to private builders and that's how you do it you know but there seems to be the, the problem is the cash and, and the financial model that we have that won't allow us to do that so instead the council are going to spend in hundreds of millions of euro buying up houses forcing everybody else now, the, the key thing here is if you're not adding to the housing stock nothing is going to change and that is the key problem we've got 2.022 million houses we added 8,000 houses to our housing stock in the last five years we need to be adding like 50,000 or 100,000 in, in five years Listen, I'm sure uh, Tom Parlin of Construction Literature Federation who I'm sure is an avid listener to this podcast will be having palpitations listening listening to you there well, but I'm, I mean I'm, 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 I'll see your house in Crumlin I'll raise you my house in Marino which was built I think by a German company it in was, 1926 yeah. and Phoenix <laughs> to, the, to a German company getting that the Finnegan TDs coming against us and the logic of, of, of everything that's, been, that, that, that's being said here that uh, that the state needs to be more interventionist that it needs to do things which people have talked about for, for decades you know arrogate greater powers to itself to, for compulsory purchase orders and things like that for, for unused land and perhaps also um, while we're doing all the stick on the other side of the carrot that's been that, that's being lobbied for you know to look at serious levies on land speculation unused unused buildings all those kinds of areas would, would they, well, we did have a windfall tax of 80% uh, that was gone and then we to attract investment we brought in the capital gains tax exemption without doing kind of you know due diligence on the likely negative side effects of this which is you know buy land get planning permission and there's yeah. no incentive to sell so we we, we have uh, you know that there are issues around the way we, we approach this for sure you know? well what we need to do is well, certainly in my view, we need to build more social housing and we actually need to build it. We don't need yeah, to buy it. We don't right. need to rent it from the market. We need to build it. And that's a very useful stimulus for a builder. I mean, a builder who gets a contract um, from a, a council or from a, from a housing association can then use that to 
give them a, a lump of money, they can then go out to, and raise uh, debt to enable them to finance a private development. And the That's profit margin, a profit, if you hire somebody to build houses for you on your behalf, their profit margin is 5, 6, 7%. If you buy a speculative built house, that profit margin can be anywhere from 15 to 35%. Yeah. But I, I think in relation to other things we need to do in the market, we need to do um, interventions that are well researched and properly targeted and we need to be very 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 careful about blanket interventions so I've already mentioned the cut in VAT which I, I think is deeply unadvisable and certainly the evidence from England and Wales indicates it will achieve nothing it will simply be pocketed no by developers there's no guarantee that, yeah. of cheaper prices so and there is also the issue that just like the cut in VAT for the tourist industry, you're subsidising the person, say, in a hotel in Donegal, a rural area in Donegal, who needs that subsidy. And you're also subsidising the Shelburne Hotel, the mm. Gresham mm. Hotel. I don't want to name individual businesses, but you're subsidising businesses that are in, doing very well, that for, are doing very well for themselves. Mm. Um, saying that, I do think there is a need for both carrot and stick into the sector. Um, in terms of the the tax on unused land, we know it's very difficult to implement and keep track of. Um, that's not necessarily an argument for not doing it, particularly in urban areas. There's probably no need to do it in lots and lots of rural areas. So I think it should be done at local authority level. The other thing I think there is an argument for is certain targeted government supports to enable developers who are actually interested in developing, in getting access to the finance to help them develop. So we know that one of the reasons why our construction industry or development industry is now so dominated by a couple of big and often foreign players is that lots and lots of smaller developers in Ireland have gone bust and they're having huge trouble in raising the finance necessary for housing development because quite rightly the banks have, have tightened up on lending. So there may be a role for targeted government intervention in that area, in my view, to, to get the sector developing again. But I would really be concerned about a blanket cut in VAT, which I feel will achieve nothing so will and will reward the people who need it and the people who don't need it and is very unlikely to be passed on to, to the buyers at the far How end. much do we need to take on board the horrendous mistakes made you know, only 10 years ago? in terms of not just the houses being built, but where they were built uh, as a result of state intervention in the market. I mean, Ireland is an incredibly badly planned country in many well, ways, isn't the, it? The problem there is that there was no research done into things like the Upper Shannon Basin Rural Relief Scheme, you know, that gave tax incentives to build houses where they, where they weren't needed. I'm not sure the capacity to do research has improved considerably in the last 15 years. Uh, from the, the, the things that I see, the policies that I see put out there, there seems to be very little in-depth research done to them, uh, each piece of legislation that's passed should have a regulatory impact assessment, which is essentially a kind of a, you know, a, a, a checking out to see the positive and negative likely impacts from it. About 20% of them do, very few of them do in, in the, from the Department of Environment to the Department of Housing. We ha I'll give you an example of a kind of a very quick example of a, of, a, of a blanket policy coming in with no research. Sprinklers are now going to be allowed in, in, in certain developments in Dunleer, Down and, and around Dublin. Sprinklers, everybody thinks, is a great idea. What it does, it is allows you not to have a lobby in your apartment, so therefore it allows, you know, greater living space, so justify smaller apartments, essentially. There's been no research done about how uh, these sprinkler systems in apartment blocks are going to be maintained over 50 years. They're safe only on the day that they're installed. After that, we don't know how they're going to fare in an Irish apartment uh, block, given the complexity of how they're run. And we, we've no real research done on the safety, potential safety benefits that, that they bring in. And yet these things are just have just been allowed 
and they changed the nature of building uh, in Ireland forever. That's and disgrace, the, isn't it? But there's no, well, there's, there are, I haven't seen any research done by the department or local authorities that, that weighs up the pros and cons of bringing it. But this, again, at the behest of lobbying from one or two big players to allow them to maximise the, the amount of apartments that they can get on, on, on their sites. The other issue related to just learning the lessons from the, the boom and bust, we need to remember is our planning system hasn't changed at all. Um, so uh, regularly we hear representatives of, of the development industry on saying our planning system is too strict and blah, blah, blah. And I always say in response, we actually have the identical planning system to the planning system we had in 2004, 2005, 2006, when we were building 70,000 units a year. So that the planning system hasn't um, the planning system hasn't changed. What's changed is how they get access to development finance. But it is a convenient whipping boy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, their, it, their arguments are actually about other things. Yeah. It's mm. the state get off my back, you know, fundamentally. But the, the point I wanted to make about our planning system that's very important and hasn't changed is our planning system create, includes perverse incentives to develop in the wrong location. And that hasn't changed. So I'll just explain the, 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 the incentives briefly. So we're in the Irish Times building now in the centre of Dublin. Um, if there happens to be a site around the corner. Which um, there is actually. Which there is actually, <laughs> right. That site is inherently very expensive and a pile of hassle to develop for the reasons that, um, for, you, for instance, you may find it's not big enough for an apartment block. You may need to assemble a site. So then you're on hook with all the neighbours to try buy their developments. You may find the land needs to be decontaminated. All of Dublin Port had to be decontaminated. You're also surrounded by neighbours. So each of those are likely to object to your planning permission. Conversely, if you buy a site on the edge of Newbridge, any town in the Dublin commuter belt, any town in the Cork commuter belt, as opposed to Cork City, there's nobody there to object. The landowner gets a windfall gain when their property, when their their land is uh, is uh, rezoned for housing, and particularly in rural areas, a lot of the driver of the excess output in places like Leitrim was that there's there's no other source of employment. I, I did a piece of research on the, the famous tax incentive scheme, Section 23 tax incentive scheme in Leitrim. And, and one of the people I interviewed said to me, you need to understand every house we build is a job for some someone's son for, for a year mm. and they can move back from London. Mm. Whereas if you're trying to develop in central Dublin, say in Mount Marion, there's a couple of projects stalled by objections there. There isn't that need to build. And it's it's so all of that means that it drives development to places we actually we know now we don't need development long term. So I mean, that's a, that sounds absolutely convincing. And one of the things that strikes me, just grasping for straws of optimism here, um, is it is there not some hope that it might be the case that Exactly those incentives for the wrong kind of development for ex-urban sprawl as opposed to the kind of more concentrated density in urban centres, which is surely going to be needed if the government is going to meet the, the climate change mm-hmm. targets, which it's committed to. That's the kind of development you're going to need. Is, is there any possibility that those kind of imperatives might might force a kind of a, a, a change of, the, of these systems? Well, what we need is for rural councils not to give planning for developments in inappropriate locations. But, to you think, give, uh, but you give planning permission to somebody, some applicant in a role, and the value of that land goes up. Sure. So it's very hard so to there's refuse a lot, there's a lot, of there's a lot at stake. Yeah, yeah. You know? we, uh, 
Is is there any expectation or is there any hope for optimism that the state can actually take this on finally uh, lurking? Because, I, I mean, we've had, what, four ministers in three and a half years or something yeah, like yeah. that? It seems to be a hot potato. Which every every policy uh, that seems to emanate from that department, and particularly the Rebuilding Ireland, which seems to have been written by the industry, for the industry, um, it, the, what you see, they're all, they're all leading down blind alleys because nobody's taking a holistic view and nobody's willing to grasp the nettle of, you know, a, a kind of a cultural shift back into constructing housings. One of the reasons that some of the Scandinavian companies, countries don't have the same problems we do is because they consistently churn out, you know, four, five, six thousand social houses every year in good times and bad, provides employment, provides training and takes the sting and takes the ups and downs out of the private sector ability to respond. Uh, and, and unless there's there's some sort of, a, eventually we're going to run out of blind alleys, I think is what's going to happen. And we'll come back to the centre and it probably won't be the current, current government, it might be the next one or the one after. And that will realise actually you need a state housing building cooperative company or whatever they want to call it, a municipal housing company that will come in and churn out the 4,000 houses. Is there a way, Michelle, it needs to be perhaps taken to some extent out of the political sphere because the level of kind of long-term planning, the kind of the the, the length of time it takes really to address these problems needs to kind of move beyond kind of the traditional political cycle. Yes, absolutely. And we need to move away from, uh, we've kind of had a boom-bust cycle of investment in social housing. So, as I said, when we have it, we spend it and when we don't, we don't. And that's very difficult to address within the political cycle because in fairness to politicians, it is much easier politically to say we're deferring this capital project, be it a build bridge, be it social housing, be it whatever, than it is to say to me, we're cutting your wages because we're cutting current expenditure. That That's the position they're in. Um, but certainly um, since the 1980s, this is a long term problem. We have suffered from a situation of lots of short term responses in housing, inadequate uh, understanding of the kind of macro level impacts on the system of individual small measures, a lot of short termism. But uh, certainly in the social housing area, a fundamental problem that our funding model is broken and we need to come up with a funding model that will enable us deliver on a regular basis at the at the levels of supply we need. It, if you speak to developers, they will admit it's just really not cost effective for them to supply the lowest end of the market. When, when we didn't have social housing, we had tenements. Countries that don't have social housing, like the, the United States, for instance, have trailer parks. Um, the, it, it's just not profitable for the market to, to meet the needs of, of probably the lowest 20 to 30 percent of, of households. And if this, if the so we need the state or non-profit agencies to do that. Um, we may have issues calling it social housing. We may worry about its reputation. We may try to manage it more effectively. But if the state doesn't do it, um, the market won't do it. Um, and the other alternatives, like rent supplement, create lots of problems when you're overly reliant on them. There's a, the current plan is uh, the current uh, housing plan. The rebuilding Ireland is a five-year plan. Like ideally that should be 25 years and you go to somewhere like Lisbon and it's a 100 year plan. I mean that's really where you're at. You need to take the long term holistic view year plan. I like, I like the sound of that. So we have to leave it there but thanks very much indeed to Lorcan Sir and Michelle Norris for joining us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Remember you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or you can subscribe via iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. And if you are already a subscriber we're always grateful if you take a moment to share or recommend the podcast to your friends. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.